welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Peter for just a minute. Chapter 3, I'm going to read two verses, and um, only, I think, pastors would probably appreciate what I'm about to say. It's always difficult knowing there's always sermons. You can find a sermon. You can make one up in a minute. But preaching the right sermon at the right time, end of the year, tomorrow's New Year's, trying to come up with something that you know is God sent that will help the church, but also at the same time present the gospel. And um, so I'm gonna preach something today. It's a little bit different. I usually try to stay contextual, which we will keep contextual. If it's biblical, it'll be contextual. And um, hopefully this will help us out. I have to say this because so many people have even this morning have testified. And the thought that comes to my mind is this, and, and somebody needs to hear this. Some Christian needs to hear this, but certainly some lost person needs to hear this. If you're a born-again Christian, the Bible says you have, and we talked about this last week, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy even in difficult circumstances. But the longer I do this, the more I study, the more I grow. We also have at our disposal peace that the Bible says no man can understand, surpasses human understanding. And the more I do this and the more I know people and the more the people I know and care about go through life, the more I appreciate the reality that God gives us peace, comfort. And I, I trust, I'm trying my best to stay on what's in front of me, but I trust that you today can say that you have peace. The peace of God that only comes from him and the peace with God, which means that you have been saved, you've been reconciled, you've been born again. You are no longer at enmity with God. You are no longer under condemnation because the reality is we're all born condemned. We're all born an enemy of God. And only until you've accepted Christ as your Savior, only then can you have peace with God that comes from the peace of God. Amen. And a couple things have been said and we may all go out in the rapture. We may not, but one way or the other, we're going to all meet God according to the word of God. We'll meet him one way, one day. And the question of all questions is, are you prepared? Am I prepared? When I go out yesterday evening and I'm sitting and talking to Charles Scott, it just doubled down and underlined the reality, and he's not the first person to make the type of decision he has to make. Some of you've been there. I was sitting with my mom in the doctor's office when he told her for the third time, and she said, I'm, I'm done, no more treatment. It wasn't because she was fin finished living, it wasn't because she didn't love her family. He can make that decision, Mr. Scott, not because he's finished living, not because he doesn't care about his family, but because he has a peace with God. Now, that sounds morbid on one hand, but it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And we're gonna, we're gonna meet him one way or the other. And the question that you have to answer, that I have to answer, that every man, woman, boy, or girl on this planet has to answer is, am I ready? Do I have peace? 
The other side of that coin is not all of us will see a doctor and hear him or her say, you got three or six months. We may meet him tomorrow. We may not know. We may not have time. It is appointed unto man once to die. And God knows the time. God knows the place. And God knows the way. And that's way above our pay grade. But what we can do is make sure in our hearts that we're born again, that we know that we know, that when it happens, we stand before him, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way you have peace with God. Now, that was the pre-sermon. I appreciate those of you who testified to help me out. Let's stand as we honor God's word. I'm going to read two verses of scripture, familiar passage that will kind of help us. It will be the impetus for the, the message. Good to have a friend of mine, a fellow pastor, Pastor Willie Rash from Centerview Baptist. I finally saw you. I couldn't find you earlier, but it's good to have you here today. Um, you know he's a real godly preacher when he's on vacation and goes to church at a local church. <laughs> he pastors Centerview Baptist right down the road. Good man. I'm say this, not to my script. Uh, I can say with certainty, and I tell people all the time, Willie Rash is one of the guys, if you don't like him, something's wrong with you. And he's a good man, a good pastor. Love him and his family. Serving God for a long, long time right here in Kannapolis. Good to have him with us today. Peter is writing to Christians, that's us, and he's warning them about the end times. Can't make it up, last days. We are living in the last days. So how long do we have? I don't know. But we are living in what biblically is referred to as the last days from Jesus' ascension to his return. You say, well, that's been a long time. In our eyes, it has been. But let me remind you that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years is as a day. It hadn't been that long to him. And um, he's going to come back, and we can look around and see that we are getting closer to that day. No question about it. This does not sound very scholastic, but what I do know is we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. And uh, we're one year closer. And we'll continue to be closer because it will happen. Peter is warning the believers. He's still warning us through the inspiration of God that in the last days it'll get worse and worse and people will turn and there'll be heresies and there'll be false teachers and there'll be false doctrines. Now we've never lived in a day where there's as much false teachings, false doctrines that look a lot like Christianity we're there, and he warns them. And I'm not going to preach this whole chapter, but I do want to conclude with verse 17 and 18. He says, you, therefore, Christians, beloved, seeing that you know these things, the things that I just mentioned to you, beware lest you also being led away with error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. Here's the sermon for verse 17. Keep keeping on. Keep on keeping on. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. This is a fact. This is a command. This is something that every Christian has been told to do. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you've been in church more than three Sundays, you might have heard that verse. This is not something that the preacher came up with or the Southern Baptist Convention came up with. Nobody emailed me and said, this is what we tell them on New Year's Eve. This is the word of God, and God expects us to grow closer and closer to him, more and more like him. Would you pray? Father, thank you for your word. I pray today this simple message will be a challenge and an encouragement to every believer. And I pray if there's a lost person here today, they know it, they've never accepted you as their savior, they've never been born again, today would be the day that they see their need. Your Holy Spirit convicts them.
and they would be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're anything like me, which I hope you're not, but if you are, every year I kind of start to look back. Some of you have already done that. You're talking about it, even testimonies. You look back at the year. I'm not here to go through my year, but I think, as I said earlier, we can all say God's been good to us. It is the goodness of God that leads a man to salvation. It's his patience, long-suffering toward us. Larry, you talked about it. Jerry, you've talked about it. When we were lost, God still loved us. His patience, his long-suffering allowed us the opportunity to be saved. I look at the new year, and, and I'm different in a lot of ways, I know. I think I heard my wife say amen for the first time in church ever, <laughs> under her breath. She's like, amen. I think about, I, I even wrote my notes, I was like, 2024. And then I wrote the words, wow. There's people, there are people sitting in this, you don't have to raise your hand, we probably can look at you and tell who you are, who you have said in your heart and mind, or at least now, you're, I never thought I would see that on a calendar. But even some of us young folks, 2024, surely we would be living the Jetsons lifestyle by now. Some of you, that just went right by you, you have met, and we don't like you. But anyway, but we're not even there yet. We're close. We went into Bucky's yesterday. Yeah, everybody say, oh my goodness. You gotta be saved to go to Bucky's, by the way. <laughs> I found that out. If you're saved and born again and full of the Holy Spirit, that's the only way you can effectively go into Bucky's without committing a crime. <laughs> and I saw more electric cars there than I've ever seen at one time. I don't know, we didn't know, I didn't, like there were Teslas forever charged up. So we're close, but not quite Jetsons. I look back and I think, I kind of, and most of us have some timeline, some bullet points in our timeline, and we think about what happened. And, and I think 2024, and I've done this for about 24 years now, I think of Y2K, 2000. And some of us in here remember that. And it's funny now to, to look back and laugh at, kinda, I guess. But to, to think that, That was 24 years ago. That was a lifetime ago for some people. There are people all through this room who weren't even a thought at Y2K. As an old teacher used to say, they weren't even a twinkle in their daddy's eye. (laughs) 24 years ago. Some of you are wondering about that statement. It's like, it's all right. It's clean. I got it passed. But now here we are, 2024, two decades, two and a half decades past Y2K when we thought we were all going to meet Jesus in a way that never we could have imagined. The world was just going to shut down and whatever. Some of you probably still have beans from Y2K, don't you? Reality, according to this scripture and many scriptures, is we're living in the last days. We are closer. This passage warns us, but it also encourages us that as we wait, as the years pile on, that we are to be growing in grace and knowledge. We're to be becoming more and more like him, like Jesus. We are called as Christians to be separated, to be holy, We don't preach a lot about that anymore, and I'll take the blame for it, me and some other preachers. We're to be a sanctified group of people. We're to be separated. How are we to do that? We're to do what Paul said in Romans 12 to, he beseeched, he urged us by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and not to be conformed to the image of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. 
The sermon title today is Three Investment Strategies for 2024. Some of you would like for me to come in and tell you five stocks to buy. You probably wouldn't because you wouldn't do it. And you shouldn't do it because I stink at picking stocks. I could give you an example and show you my E-Trade account on my phone and you would say, don't take advice from him. I did buy Tesla. One share. <laughs> anyway, some of you appreciate that, some of you don't. Some of you have thousands of shares and we need to see that manifest at the end of the year right now. Show us. Three investment strategies for 2024. No, they're not financial. When you think of the word invest, what does the word invest mean? It means to commit something in order to earn something. Financially, it means to commit money, to commit financially so that you financially gain. If I were to, and I'm not, be conducting a financial seminar, you, would, you should kick me out and fire me, and have somebody else come in that could do it better. But if I were to do that, and you know, there, there are some people that will have, I'm careful how I say this, they'll have meetings and they'll bring you in and say, um, hey, here's a sandwich, now at the end here's the sales pitch and I need your money to invest. If we were to do that in a crowd like this on a Sunday and you came in unprepared, you'd be like, well, I don't have anything to invest. By the way, that's not the people that financial advisors invite to their parties. They invite the people with the money so that at the end they can invest. So that's not what we did. That's not what I did. I'm not here to ask you to invest financially because around this room and around any other room this size, there will be people that have means and those who don't have means financially. The request or the challenge is for us, for us all to invest something that we all have. There's a couple things that we all have that God has given us. One is time. Now, we don't like to talk about this, and I'm not here to because I'll get convicted and have to go to the altar if we start talking about time, but we all have been given the same amount of time. I don't need to do the math for you. We all have been given the same amount of time. And immediately, some really busy person in here just popped in their mind, yeah, but you don't know all I've got to do. I know, I, I know it. I've heard it. I sensed it. But we've all been given the same amount of time. But we also have all been given the same commands and the same gifts and the same talents, if you will, from God that he expects us to invest with. I heard a, a preacher a long, long time ago, and it doesn't matter who he is, but it's a short little statement, and I never forgot it, and it applies financially, but it applies to time, and he said this, anything worth having cost, and I have found that to be true in life. Even when you buy appliances, like you don't, if you buy the cheapest, you get the cheapest, right? And so that's why you get so upset when you don't buy the cheapest and it messes up. Oh, I could have bought three of the cheap ones. But it costs. If you want a, something that matters, something that's quality, it costs. But not just financially, anything worth having costs. And our greatest resource in this life is our time. And we all have been given the same amount of it. And I could stop right here and I could take a detour and we would all be convicted to an extent of how we use our time. But we've been given the same amount. And it is a challenge if I'm honest. It's a challenge how to juggle our time. And now would be a good time to say we need to invest our time wisely in what God's priorities and not just ours. But that's not the message, so I won't go there. But I want to look at these three strategies for investment in the new year. And, and really, this is probably the most simple elementary message I've ever preached in my life. But I hope it's a challenge to all of us. I'm not going to check your homework. We're not going to have check-ins once a month. But I really want, as your pastor, to challenge you and challenge me to make these investments this year. They're not new, not innovative, they're straight from the word of God. Number one, to invest in prayer. 
Testimonies have already talked about this. To invest in prayer. I believe, honestly, prayer is one of our greatest gifts, privileges, and responsibilities, but most likely the most underutilized in the church today. I'm, I'm gonna try to make this short and sweet and stay with my notes, which is often difficult. But if we compare the church's prayer life today with the church's prayer life of the first century, convicted is not even the word to use. These men went out and preached and were threatened, were put in jail, were beaten, and some were killed. And they were told by the kings, they were told by the religious leaders, do not preach in the name of Jesus anymore or you will be killed. They didn't go back and say, um, hey, by the way, I'm in, I'm in Acts. They, they didn't go back to the, the gathering place and say, you know what, we gotta shut down and find a new way to do this. They went back and they asked the church to pray for them. They didn't pray for protection. They prayed for boldness to go do it again. And God forbid the government say anything to the church today. I mean, you want to clean out a church, tell them they got to wear a mask. Now, I hate to say that word because that's now a cuss word in church, but... And it's divisive, sharper than any two-edged sword. <laughs> but think of how silly that is and how it decimated churches. Not the virus, but the, the kings and the leaders. I heard it recently, and, and I, if I'm honest, I'm just gonna say it as honest as I know how. Most of us, are too comfortable. Now, I'm gonna say something, you don't have to amen it, but if we're honest, if we're honest, you don't have to, please don't respond. Many of us don't know what to pray for. I'm not being mean, I'm talking to all of us. Please don't look at me like you got offended because we're too comfortable. We got everything we need. We got stuff we don't need. We clean out children's bedrooms at Christmas so we can buy more Christmas. We got cars, we got jobs, we got money. We'll go out to eat four times a week. What do I pray for? Maybe we need some things to pray for. Or maybe we need to change our lifestyles. I didn't say quit your job and not have any food. I didn't say that. All those things are fine if you can manage your money and handle it. I'm talking about spiritually. What are we praying for spiritually? And I'm gonna help you out. Scripture says that we're to pray. Think about this. Think about this, and, and y'all do what, you do what you want to with it. I've thought this through. Pray without ceasing. Well, it seems like you'd have to have a lot to pray for to do that. In Hebrews 4, the writer says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That doesn't mean we only pray when we need. And I'm trying to make and draw on the connections. If we're to pray without ceasing, then certainly we're not just praying for needs. We're praying for a lot of things. And I got a few things I want us to pray for. And this might sound interesting or not. We're to pray for ourselves. Pray for yourself. That sounds really selfish. No? Y'all know this, this passage of scripture in Matthew 6 called the Lord's Prayer? Do you know that it's better understood to be the disciples' prayer? They said, teach us how to pray, and he says in the Lord's Prayer, after this manner, pray ye. 
This is how we're to pray. Um, Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not. He's talking to multiple people, so he's talking to in plurality, but he's individually, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Give me this day my daily bread. Pray for yourself. Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive me my debts as I forgive those who are in debt to me. And that's not credit card debt. The word there for debt actually means what is owed, and it has a spiritual connotation to it. Yeah, we're to forgive other people too, but we pray for ourselves. We pray for sickness. James chapter 5 is a great passage on prayer, and he says, If any man among you be afflicted or suffering, let him pray. Later he'll say, let them call on the men of the church to pray for them. But here he says, if you're suffering, let them pray. Well, if you're suffering, who are you praying for? You. It's all right to pray for yourself. I didn't say, oh, I hope, I pray. Well, let me change the hope, God. Let me, I pray I hit that mega millions. <laughs> now, if you want to do that, you can, but don't tell anybody out loud. And if you hit it, we'll take it. I've said this before, but Jerry Falwell used to say, we'll use the devil, devil's money to do God's work anytime. And if you give over a million, we'll put your name on the building. That's in our bylaws. Invest in prayer. Prayer for yourself. Prayer for the saints. And I want to kind of Dig down just a a couple inches on this one. Paul told Timothy, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. We're to pray for each other. We're to pray for the saints. I've said this so many times. I said this last night. I said it a week ago when I was with the Uri's. I find myself when I'm in a hospital or when I'm in a home and someone's going through something you would never want anybody to go through. Almost 100% of the time, the first reaction I have when I pray for them is, God, what a privilege it is to be able to talk to you for them. I want that to sink in for a second. That God has told us to come boldly before his throne of grace and ask. Now we understand, I hope you understand as a believer that it's not because we're so holy and spiritual we can come before God. No, we come before God at any time dressed in the righteousness of Christ and what he did paying our price for sin so that we can come into the holy of holies and pray to God, period. But think about the magnitude of you me, a saint of God, being able to go into the holy of holies of God and pray for someone we love and care about. Have you ever thought about the power of that truth? We're to pray for each other. It sounds really simple, but it's practical. Pray for each other. If I call it, I'm pretty transparent. Sometimes it's unfortunate. But we have a prayer sheet that's full on the front. Some of them you don't know from Adam's house cat. Right? If if you've never seen our prayer sheet, at the top it has new people that are in the hospital or having surgery. Well, then it's got continue to pray for. Those are church members that are going through something that you don't want to go through. And their name is on there for you to continue to pray for. Then we have family members, church friends and family. Now, you understand if we all filled out a sheet, we'd have about 14 pages front and back. So these people are people that have gone through a process, someone's called in, and they really need prayed for. After they've been on there a while, we take them off. On the back of that sheet, we have a list of our shut-ins. Those are people that are members of our church that are shut-in. They can't physically get to church on a regular basis, period. So I don't have anything to pray for. There you go. All right? I'm serious. 
It's, it's in physical format. We still kill trees around here. And it goes out every Thursday by an email. It's a PDF. Now, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm telling you and trying for us to understand the reality that we can, and I want, I want us to think about what we're doing. We can go before the God of heaven, creator and stainer, sustainer of the universe, and talk to him and ask for him to help someone that we care about. And if you do that, you're looking for some things to do. This is not New Year's resolutions, these are just some things to do in 2024. If you pray for somebody, let them know you did. It's just a little challenge. Now, that's between you and God and them of how you do it. I just want to let you know that I said a word of prayer for you today. If you do it in that way, just don't pray. Just don't do it. But if you sincerely pray for somebody, send them a text, send them a card, send them something, call them if you're still on the rotary and say, hey, hey, I want you to know that I prayed for you this morning. And, and say, I love you. God loves you. I prayed for you. Hope you're having a good day. Bye-bye. Don't stay on there long. You'll start talking about the preacher. Right? <laughs> That's it. Text them. Love you. Care about you. Prayed for you today. Send them a Bible verse. Just do it. Pray for each other. Pray for the saints. James says in James 5, this is going to be loud. I'm back. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. We're encouraged, we're commanded to call on the leadership in the church and pray for each other. Pray for yourself, pray for the saints, pray for salvations. Probably one of the most visually stimulating passages of Scripture, I think, to me, is in Matthew chapter 9. There's a couple other passages where Jesus sees the multitudes. But in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, Jesus saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous. You heard that verse before? The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. So what does Jesus say do? Anybody following along? Pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. We're to pray for salvations. We're to pray for people to be saved. Now, that, that passage specifically says, pray that someone will go. So don't use that as an excuse. Well, I prayed that somebody else goes. So you're, you're praying as a church for someone to go. God might say, well, you're the one. Or he might wake me up and say, go talk to him. And your prayer is answered because God answered your prayer that the, the Lord of the harvest would send someone, a laborer. Paul in Romans chapter 10, we studied Romans on Wednesday nights. Paul was a Jew. Paul had a desire for his Jewish friends and family to be saved. And he said, my heart's desire and prayer. Paul prayed for his Jewish neighbors, his Jewish friends, his Jewish family. I want to encourage this church to pray for people to be saved. This is going to sound old-fashioned. And... Um, different than some people and I, I don't know how to say this other than how I'm about to say it which I didn't script it church has changed in 20 years when it comes to praying for lost people now you can take notes on this and buy me lunch and talk about it later if you want to and I can't put my finger on what exactly happened and why it's exactly happened 
I don't like it. It's just my opinion. But people don't pray like they used to in church. Specifically for lost people. And I'm not here to discuss it because it's my turn to preach and I preach and you listen and then we'll go. But if you, we, we can talk about it later. But there's still just as many lost people or more than there were 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Statistically, there has to be much more lost people than there were 50 years ago. We've got 8 billion people on the planet. We've got missionaries all over the world preaching, teaching the gospel. But yet it seems like the church has stopped praying for people to be saved. Now, please don't, please, be, we're on the same team. If, you're, if you pray every night or every morning for somebody to be saved, God bless you, I'm serious, great. I'm saying as a church, cooperatively and collectively praying sincerely in agreement that people get saved. I'm, I'm not a church historian, I know just enough to be dangerous, but I know there was a day when churches were full, not just on Sunday, and altars, oh, there's that word, altars were full of people on their knees, which I believe is a sign of humility to God, praying for people by name. We don't do it anymore. It doesn't happen anymore. Now, I'm not saying anywhere yet. It doesn't happen here. Doesn't happen in most Baptist churches I know around here. I'm not saying that if the preacher does, says, okay, all of y'all come front, we're going to pray for somebody this morning, that you wouldn't all come. I, I didn't say that because we would. We have. I don't, know how, I don't know how to flesh this out and help us other than something's happened in the church to where we're not concerned as much as we used to be as a church for lost people. I'm not mad. I, I'm, I'm not mad. We're, we're in this together. But you can't, with a straight face and a Holy Spirit living inside of you, tell me that something hasn't changed. We're to pray for salvations of other people. Call them out by name. Ask people that you know that are prayer warriors to pray for that person. Pray for them by name. I do know this. I know why a lot of people don't get saved in Baptist churches anymore. Since I'm there, I might as well. We don't have many lost people coming to church anymore. Saved people don't get saved. I found that out. Not again. Except youth camp. <laughs> Invest in prayer. Invest in Bible. I got to stop. I got to move away from that one. That got, that got a little hostile. Invest in prayer, invest in Bible study. Study to show yourself approved unto God. All the Awana people know that. A workman that needs not to be ashamed. This is not a suggestion. God says study the word of God. Know the word of God. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, to beware, there's some false prophets. The only way you know there's false prophets is if you know the truth. The only way you can spot a heresy is when you know the truth. It's important for churches to preach the truth. So when their church members go out and hear false prophets and false teachings, they can identify it. Yeah, I think it's appropriate sometimes for pastors to call out false prophets. I think that's appropriate, I think that's biblical. But it's not necessary if the truth is being preached and you can see it with your own eyes and you hear false teaching, you ought to be able to say, that sounds a little fishy. Doesn't sound like what I've been hearing. You say, well, well, what would change from that person preaching that? If the person preaching is preaching this, that's how you know what the other person's saying. If it doesn't coincide with this, it must not be true. So we got to stay here. But my job is not to study the Bible for you. 
Your Sunday school teacher's job is not to study the Bible for you. They're to study the Bible to help teach you. But it's our job, it's our individual, not just job, but our privilege to study the Word of God. I say this somewhat often, and a lot of times it comes out in a prayer personally and at church. If you have a copy of this book, you are blessed. If you have a copy of this book that you can read in your own language, you are blessed. And most of us who've been in church a while have multiple copies of this book, sometimes in multiple translations that we can all read. I know I'm young but I'm still old-fashioned. And I encourage you to have a copy that's not on that loud device, but to have one you can hold, touch, feel, and smell, and read. I'm old school enough, I don't have a verse for this, so you don't have to amen it. (laughs) I'm old school enough to to say amen to the preachers used to say, well, I want them to know whose side I'm on. If you're walking into church, at least have you a copy. Even if you just picked it up for the first time in a week, now's a good time to bring it. No, just no, don't do that. Don't believe it. Invest in it. Right now, statistics tell us from Pew Research that only 45% of Christians read their Bible at least once a week. I want you to think about that poll. You've got choices. How many times do you read your Bible? At least once a week. 45% of professing Christians. Now, if if you love our daily bread, you're you're getting more than once a week. Okay, some people know I I have fun with our daily bread, but I like bread, but not, anyway. You telling me, I I think about the poems like, at least do you, did you read your Bible at least once a week? How many people have to go? Not the world, not the people at Walmart, the Christians, church members were polled. Do you, how many times do you read your Bible? Now, I'm, I'm not sitting up here like Pope John Paul XII and acting like I'm holier than anybody. I'm saying, what a question for a Christian to have to think about. And after thought, less than half of them say, yeah, once a week. That shouldn't be. And then I find, I, I like to read research every now and then, and these numbers blow my mind, and, and the, the research is wrong, and the vocabulary is wrong, and we gotta, re, we gotta change it up. Because I look at Gallup, I look at Pew, I look at Barna. Listen to this. I want you to listen carefully to this thing. We're talking about Bible study. We're talking about investing in Bible study. 20%, listen carefully, I will enunciate certain words. of U.S. adults believe the Bible is actually the Word of God. Does that sound about right? U.S. adults, 20%. One out of five believe the Bible is actually the Word of God. I think that's pretty liberal. I think that's probably greater than... Anyway, that's just me. 25% of Christian adults believe the Bible is the actual Word of God. Everybody catch that? You say, well, that's better than 20. It's professing Christians that one in four says they believe it's the word of God. And I know what all of you, some, I, feel it, I feel it coming back. What some of you are thinking is, they didn't call me. I know, but that's how all the polls work. <laughs> 49% of U.S. adults believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Half of, half of America? Nah, they lied. They didn't know what that meant. But let's say half. 58% of Christian adults believe it's the inspired word of God. 58%. Well, that's better than 50. But it should be 100% of Christians believe that it's the inspired word of God. Why? Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
Good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in all righteousness. It's all God's word or it's not all God's word. But nearly 60% of Christians, professing Christians, say they believe it's inspired by God. You didn't ask, but I kind of feel like you want to know what I think about that. I think if you don't believe the word of God is inspired by God, then you're not a Christian. How, how could you be? How could you only believe the parts that make you a Christian and throw out the rest? Or vice versa. Obviously, it's not just about knowing the word of God or storing up some knowledge, but it's about knowing the God of the word. I've said this for years. I never read it. I think it's one of my greatest quotes ever. There's no healthy relationship with God apart from a healthy relationship with his word. It's impossible. Why? Because this is the word. And in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. This is how we know him. This is how we know him. It's, it's not some book of magic answers. It's not a magic eight ball that we open up and say, you know, should I take this job? Yes, I believe that's a good idea. That's not how this works. What we do is we know him more. We become more like him. We look into the, the mirror of his word, the perfect law of liberty, and it changes us because we see some imperfections and we see some thoughts that shouldn't be there and we see some priorities that ought to change. And as we change and become more like him, then our answers to our questions become more clear because we're answering questions the way Jesus would answer questions. Stop opening up your Bible and seeing something and thinking somebody just gave you a word. You can get your palm read probably quicker and more accurately than just finding random pages. And God must have told me this. Please don't write me a letter. At least you do sign it. So well, I did it one time ago. I'm not saying he can't. He's God and he can do what he wants to do. But this was made to read and study to know who he is and for us to be changed into his likeness and not conform to the image of the world but to be transformed to his image. And when we're more like him, our decisions become easier and more clear. That's how we get answers from his word. We're to invest in prayer, invest in Bible study. We're to invest in the Great Commission. I, I've got so much to say. But the Great Commission is why we're here. If you're here and you say, oh, I don't know what the Great Commission is. We were greatly commissioned by God, by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 28, before he leaves, the last thing he said, which has to be important, is go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Teach the nations to observe all things whatsoever ever commanded. I'm with you forever. Do it. How do we invest in the Great Commission. We invest in the Great Commission by going. Now that scared some people when I said that because it's eight till and I said go and all this is nervous to you. Does God still call pastors? Yeah, I think he does. Does God still call missionaries? I think he still does. Let me ask it this way. Do you think God still wants pastors? And God still wants missionaries? Yeah. Is the Great Commission still the Great Commission? Yeah. Why does it not happen like it did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? See the same logic. We need to be praying for people to go. We need to be praying for our young people to respond to the gospel and to respond to the call of God on their life. And then to encourage them and to disciple them and to help them. And I believe we're doing that here. And I'm excited about it. And I think God has some plans for some other young people as well if they'll respond to him. And we're gonna do our part as a church to help them. So, so you don't get nervous. I'm not saying um, go quit your job tomorrow and move to Zimbabwe. I didn't say that. <laughs> going to all the world means as we are going. You've heard that before. Every believer is a missionary. 
He doesn't just say go into all the world as in, hey, get a, get a, plane, a plane ticket and take off somewhere and go work for International Mission Board. He's saying as you go, and everywhere you go and everything you do, you're to be a, a witness for me. It's the opposite of what Christians have been taught to do today. Not by the church, hopefully, but by the world and the culture. We've been taught to compartmentalize our faith. We've been taught that this is the place where you sing and praise God and study your Bible and talk about Jesus. But Jesus taught to wherever you go and whatever you do, talk about me. Be my witnesses. I know when I say that, people get all nervous about work and all that. You don't know my work. They're a bunch of antichrist. And I didn't say, you know, I used to tell kids when I was youth pastor, they don't mean to get up on your table at, your, at the cafeteria and open up your Bible and start Billy Grahaming them. Do that, tell me about it. I'd like to know how it turned out. But that means be a Christian wherever you're at. Be a witness wherever you're at. I thought about this this morning. I thought about how um, we, we, we feel like we have to teach everybody how to evangelize. I'm not saying it's wrong to teach evangelism. We need to know. We need to be taught some things. But that shouldn't keep us from being a witness. I love John chapter four, woman at the well. Let me tell you how I think it could have happened. She met Jesus. He's the Messiah. I know it. Oh, I think she got saved at the well, personally. And then Jesus said, well, go down to the church. They're having an evangelism class every Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. And they'll, they'll teach you how to tell people about me. That's, that's only in the NIV. That's in the NIV, but it's not in the rest. Just kidding. No. She met Jesus. She ran into town, and she said, hey, everybody, come see a man that knows everything I ever did. He must be the Messiah. She didn't know how to witness she just told them what happened. And here's what I used to say, and I say this to all of us as adults. That's enough. Go tell them what he did, and if you don't know anymore, say, hey, come see him. Amen. He'll be at Central Baptist on Sunday morning at 1030. Amen. Youth, he'll be, at, he'll be at church on Wednesday night. Come see a man that knows everything. Come see a man that changed my life. That's all I got for you. But if you come on Wednesday night, somebody else will tell you more. And Jesus showed up, and he changed the whole town. They had a camp meeting. They begged him to stay longer, and he did. That's what it means to go. You can also go on some mission trips. We're going to do that in 2024. Invest in the Great Commission by going. And here it is. I saved the best for last. Invest in the Great Commission by giving. I didn't say one or the other. Well, I can't go, but I can give you a dollar. We'll take it. If anybody goes on a mission trip this year, and some will, they'll take it. We do that through International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, Southern Baptist Convention. We support independent missionaries. We send it so that somebody else can go. We, but it doesn't keep us from going. Some of you will go to work this week. My challenge for you is to go. Not just to work, but to go. Unfortunately, kids, when school starts back this week and life becomes detrimental again, <laughs> go. Go. In all the world. But we can also give. The 2024 budget is out. There's the announcement. It was out last week. It's out this week. It'll be voted on next week. Part of that budget, now I'm always happy to say this, and I, I send it to the deacons. I break out this information. 3% of every dollar that comes in goes to the Southern Baptist Convention, which supports Missionaries International North American Mission Board. 11% of every dollar that comes into our budget that's given at this church goes to missions outside of that 11 percent 15% of every dollar that comes in goes to our own our own ministries here at the church we're, we're 
we're doing our part. So part of this is for me to encourage you who give to know that it's going to the right place. Our job is the Great Commission. I mean, you can do the math real quick and find out that over uh, nearly 30% of every dollar that comes in here comes to some sort of missions, whether it's a local, independent, foreign mission, or a mission that goes on here where the gospel is presented to your kids and to my kids and your grandkids and their grandkids and to the community. Give. Give to missionaries. Give to the church. Give to Lottie Moon, which we're doing right now. I have a nice Lottie Moon quote here. Somewhere. Where she basically said the question is not to pray where to go, but the question is to pray, should I stay home? Because we know the answer. No. In 2024, in this new year, the challenge is for all of us to invest. Invest in prayer. Pray for each other. Pray for souls to be saved. You know anybody that's lost? You know anybody that if they died tomorrow, according to scripture, they'd open up their eyes in hell? Are you praying for them? Am I praying for them? Am I having one of my Christian brothers and sisters helping me pray for them? Are you praying for people that sit two sections over that you've never known? I wouldn't know them if they walked up to me, but their name's on the prayer sheet, and the pastors called them out Sunday after Sunday. Pray for people. Pray for each other. Are you daily studying the Word of God? Study to show yourself approved. Not because we check it off our list and we get to heaven, God said, well, you got a special place because you studied every day. No, so that while we're here, we're more like him and we're led by him, knowing him, knowing what he thinks, knowing how he loves, knowing how he forgives. Invest in the Great Commission. Everywhere we go, we have to be a Christian if we're a Christian. You can't take it off and put it on. That's not what he asks. That's not what he requires. You run a business, is it a Christian business? Or is it a Christian business? They don't do business with them. They say they're Christian. That does happen, right? Y'all looked at me like that doesn't happen. It's like, The world has come to us in America. And if we want to dig down deeper, the world has come to us in Kannapolis and Cabarrus County and Rowan County. The religions of the world have come to us. Are they influencing us or are we influencing them? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray these simple words today have been a help have been an encouragement. God, I pray that any decisions that are made today are not just simple New Year's resolutions where we turn over a new leaf, but that the challenges and the strategies here are who we are as we grow in grace and knowledge, as we grow in your word and know you more, become more like you. While we're in a time of prayer, I want to ask you, do you know that you're born again? Do you have the peace that we talked about earlier? And knowing no matter what happens, you have the peace of God, the peace with God. If you don't, 
The gospel message has been pretty clear. We're born separated from him. We're born an enemy of God. But God did love the world so much that he sent Jesus. And he did demonstrate his love toward us that while we were a sinner, Jesus died for us. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you're here today and you're lost, you've never accepted Christ as your savior. I believe Romans 10, 13 spells it out. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can do that today. If you make that decision, I would certainly like to know it. Our church would like to know it. Tell a friend. If you tell one of us, we'll put some information in your hand to let you help you grow in grace and knowledge. If you want to come to an altar and pray when we sing, you can. Someone will pray with you. The challenge is also for the believer to grow and grace and knowledge. We can do that by being men and women of prayer, men and women who study the Word of God, and men and women who do the work of the ministry in the Great Commission. Do you stand as we sing? Altars are open if you want to come to an altar and pray as we sing. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.